The views and opinions that are expressed in this and future podcasts are not the views coming out of the State Office of African American Affairs and are not the views coming out of any other state agency, including the governor's office. I'm Danny Golden. And I'm Devin Williams. And this is Reeducated, a podcast brought to you by the New Mexico State Office of African American Affairs. Welcome, everybody, to Reeducated, a podcast where we're going to rethink, relearn, and get reeducated on many topics concerning the Black community here in the state of New Mexico. The purpose of the podcast is to educate the community on environmental, social, and physical inequities and challenges that Black communities must deal with and what can be done to empower the Black community to help them navigate through the understanding of legislation and policy on a micro and macro level. So hey everybody, welcome to Reeducated, a podcast where we're going to rethink, relearn, and get reeducated on many topics pertaining to the Black community here in New Mexico. First off, we really want to thank all of our listeners thus far. It's been an amazing journey. We've loved hearing from all of you and telling stories that we can all relate to and bringing our allies together here for this podcast. So we're going to get into it. This is episode three, and we are actually going to be talking about plight of the Black athlete in New Mexico. Uh, who better to speak on this topic than our very own Devin Williams, who has a long history in athletics and especially most recently here in New Mexico. I'm going to kind of turn the reins over to Devin because this is his area of expertise. And yeah, I'll just be kind of chiming in and learning along the way. So here we go. When you look at athletics, first of all, you have to define what athletics means. So for the sake of this episode, we'll define sport as physical activities that involves challenges in athletic contests. So essentially, when you're looking at it, and specifically when you're looking at Black athletes, we're going to be talking a lot about spectator sports. And so basketball, football, track, all the ones that have a very big, Black population in them. And so when you look at sports, inherently, you have to look at the aspects of race. Race is uh, essentially a recent invention that came during the 17th century where Europeans conquered different aspects or different parts of the world. And as they encountered different cultures, they essentially didn't understand the way that these cultures operated, the customs, the traditions, all those different things. And so instead of saying, oh, these are humans, these are individuals that are like me, but just look different, they labeled them as different races. Mm. And that's where you start getting that, the other, you know, if you're not white, then you're this classification, this classification, or this one. Exactly. And it's essentially, when you're looking at all aspects of society, specifically in the U.S., not only New Mexico, everything has a Eurocentric touch just because all the a lot of the legislation, a lot of the bills are languaged in a way that it includes different races. Mm, okay. But we'll get more into that. Yeah, definitely. Essentially, during this time, around the 18th century, as we progress uh, in the story, race uh, started to be associated with different religions, scientific theories, and uh, a combination of different economic and religious processes. And look at where we are now. It has progressed into race being identified with biology. Mm. 
Yeah. And so when you look at Black people, white people have associated Black people being stronger, faster, and having an animal-like primitive presence when dealing with society and specifically with sports. One of the reasons that white people feel like they have the justification to conquer all these other different ethnic groups is because they labeled everybody as different races. And so that's justification for being able to take the land from Native Americans to enslave Black people because they feel like they're the superior race in terms of intelligence. Right. And in fact, I mean, I know that there was a lot of energy put into these so-called studies done by you know, professional scientists, researchers, et cetera, that tried to propagate those theories Mm -hmm. uh, that mixed race and biology. Yes, and what makes it difficult to dismantle is you had these universities where these studies were conducted that are very prestigious and deeply rooted into the language, the laws, the legislation that has been passed and is still being critiqued, edited, and reformed, all these different things. But yeah, they essentially laid the foundation and the premise for Black inequities, especially when it comes to sports. And now we're at a time where essentially sports are, for Black people, the modern-day plantation. Mm. And I say that in the sense of back in the slave times, you had slave owners putting different slaves against each other during like holidays, you know, uh, weekends and uh, special times as a tradition. And essentially they would have these slaves picking cotton, foot racing against dogs and horses, and essentially headbutting and wrestling each other uh, to the death or to one of the other Uh, became unconscious. Obviously, I think some people hear that comparison and they think that it's so drastic or that it's an an exaggeration, but we are in different times. There's a likeness there. You know what I mean? There's a likeness in how we were inspected and sold and bought like common cattle. Mm -hmm. And there's a likeness from that to what we see today, you know, in in the draft and how our, especially the Black athletes, are handled within this realm. Mm-hmm. And what makes it difficult or what makes it hard to really have Black people treated fairly when it comes to sports is they think Black people are superhuman. They think Black people don't feel pain. They think Black people aren't intelligent enough to understand what's going on, the hardships that they have to deal with, so on and so forth. And when it comes to being successful at sports such as basketball, football, volleyball, track, when a Black person is successful, they essentially shape the conversation as, oh, they should be doing that, or, oh, they're supposed to. Oh, it's their primitive nature to be athletic and do sports. But when a white person does it, oh, they worked really hard. Exactly. <laughs> They're the hero. They have right. such a great standard of character and hard work ethic that it led them to get to this position. And that's not the case. When you look at biology, 
essentially, more or less, we're all on the same plane. Mm -hmm. The reason why Black people excel in certain sports is because two things. One, that ideology or that conceptualization of feeling like they can only be in one sport or only excel in the entertainment industry. Mm. When you see all these individuals that look like you on the fields, you know, on the court, doing different interviews, making millions, mm -hmm. as a black kid, you're like, okay, this is the way I can make it out in order to put food on the table for my family. Right. That, along with the racial ideologies that are instilled in this nation, People thinking, like, Black people are bigger, stronger, faster. As a kid, you see that and you see the way people treat you. You're going to start to overwork your body or work harder in a certain way to get to a certain level because that concept, that ideology is put on you. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting, though, because it's twofold, right? It's mm -hmm. put on and it impacts the psyche of the person that's experiencing mm -hmm. those, I guess, misconceptions or things like that. But then you have the way that those images impact white people in mm -hmm. this country and how they end up internalizing what they've seen and acting out a certain way against Black people in different situations. Um, for example, you know, if you are a cop and every Sunday you're watching these tall, strong, mm -hmm. really superhuman black men with this superhuman strength and they're just big and brutish yeah. and that's what the images are saying to you and that's what you're being fed. Then of course, when you're in a situation where you're faced with pulling over a black man, what is your psyche like? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And that no one in society can kind of escape those images that are spat at us from, you know, media and other sources of entertainment. Yeah. And just to add on to that, it's not only from the physical aspect, it's from the intellectual aspect. Mm -hmm. I've been in multiple conversations where I was able to articulate myself in a certain way. And they say, oh, you sound white. Or are you mm -hmm. trying to be white passing or talking to another individual? Hmm, I never thought you would be that articulate or mm. Mm, you said you played basketball did you go to college you know just yeah, different microaggressions exactly <laughs> those microaggressions that essentially are built in again from just the way that these racial ideologies play into the structure of society and yeah. that's how you have that systemic racism because you have this structure that was created based off of you know, European ideologies and not necessarily looking at human rights or the human aspect. Right. Because really, I mean, when we have this conversation, it kind of comes down to the fact that the system doesn't show that Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But in, in this realm, in the sports realm, Black lives only matter if they're making big bucks. And that's yeah. all they matter for. Nothing you know, past that, nothing more, nothing less. And then that's when we have the issue of, you know, are these people human? Are they, you know, do they own themselves or does the team own them mm -hmm. when it comes to, you know, standing up for those social injustices and having something to say and expressing themselves as an individual, not just as a member of whatever sports team they're affiliated with? Yeah. The issue that we're dealing with now, 
because Black people essentially are the reason why we have all these sports, all this money, all this influence when it comes to our economy, specifically in the sports realm, Black dollars are being spent. And when you have racial and social injustices that happen specifically with, you know, the case with Breonna Taylor and the rulings with George Floyd, now you have individuals who are trying to save face and, you know, have those Black dollars. And so now Mm. you have that performantism Mm. when you look at the NFL. Look at what they did to Colin Kaepernick. And look at what they're saying now. Exactly. Yeah, now now all of a sudden it's like, oh, good old Colin. We're Mm -hmm. sorry. Black lives do matter. Um, So y'all going to back pay this man? Exactly. (laughs) Look at all the money that he's lost. Yes. They've, They've really, like, messed this man's life up over, you know, a position that he took that wasn't political. He was literally just saying that, you know, it's wrong to murder us. Mm-hmm. We're being murdered because we're black. We're just trying to live, you know, and they just railroaded him. And now all of a sudden you said there, here comes the performance of let's make sure now that everybody's kind of come around or coming around, let's mm-hmm. make sure we're as the NFL, we're on the right side of history. Exactly. And I think it's the same thing with the NBA. Yeah. They have all this Black Lives Matter stuff, you know, and it's cool to see that mm-hmm. and forcing everybody to see some of the some of our perspective when it comes to these different issues and challenges that we deal with in society. But how much money are you pouring into Black issues instead of just showing it on the front stage? I saw these dudes, when they first came there, they get all these little box lunch. You got, (laughs) you know, six, two to seven foot dudes eating a little kindergarten school lunch. I'm like... (laughs) All the money that they've poured into the NBA, all the money that they've helped the NBA and all the individuals that are constituents Mm -hmm. and are affected by the NBA. And all you can do is pay all these athletes or provide all these athletes with is a box lunch. Yeah. It's, um, It's to the point where, I mean, I look at it and I know it's so it pulls you in different directions, right? Because at the same time, yes, like these athletes love playing sports. Mm -hmm. They're talented. This is what they want to do. And people might say, oh yeah, they have a choice. They don't have to do that. But that's that's not the point. The point is that we shouldn't be bought and sold. We shouldn't Mm -hmm. be taken advantage of. We shouldn't have to worry about the projections of white people on black bodies following us into society. You know what I mean? That's what we're talking about when, yeah, we are talking about athletics, but we have to look at how the culture in athletics perpetuates and lifts up and upholds a lot of these systematic practices that oppress us. Yeah. And one of the things that when you're looking at the culture of athletics is these Black athletes are just doing it just because that's all they know how to do. And that's everybody's perception. And essentially, you're looking at a free market to where you have these Black athletes from before they're born to when they get to college and Mm. even during college. We should be paying these young Black athletes. Mm. We going to get into that conversation? We We got to get into that (laughs) conversation. We have to. Now we have Whitney Stevenson, a former student athlete from Eastern New Mexico University. Here's what she had to say. It pretty much was 
was all the same in a way. It went from having coaches that are just all about getting the raise and the paycheck to the NAIA where it was pretty good. You know, the coach was great. School was great. Got good money. And then came here and I was promised, you know, to get more money in my scholarship if I proved, like, my hard work and stuff like that and wind up never seeing any extra money and being told the only reason why I ever got extra money was because I would take some of the athletes to the airport and bring them back on campus. So what, Devin, what is your take on that? Because obviously I'm not a person that knows very much about sports, but Mm -hmm. what I do know is high school athletes and college athletes are not paid. It is in fact overtly against Mm -hmm. the rules for the players to receive any form of compensation, monetary compensation, from what I understand. You can't receive compensation until you get to the pro level. And even something that shocked me that I just learned was you can't even, like, make money off of your likeness or your your brand or your star power before you get to those levels. So Mm -hmm. they really just shut you down in every aspect. What do you think about that? Should we change that up? Well, I think we definitely should. Yeah. Especially starting at the high school level. You have Mm -hmm. these top-level athletes, these top-level prospects who are breaking their backs, you know, destroying their bodies, pushing their bodies to limits that the human body probably shouldn't necessarily be pushed to, but because they have, we have a drive, you know, and we only, we feel like the only way that we can provide for our families or get out of certain situations is due to these sports, then these kids should be provided compensation for mm-hmm. what they're trying to do. If you look at, say, for instance, you look at the number one player in the nation. Mm-hmm. All the media attention, all the money that they're bringing in just to their school, their university, or not university, but their high school, they're bringing all these different dollars for people to uh, come to the games. You know, Mm -hmm. you can upsell the tickets or you can Mm -hmm. provide or make individuals pay more for the tickets. You can also have all these different media outlets that are essentially branding Mm -hmm. and providing opportunities to show off who they are for free off of the back of this, you know, number one ranked player. Here's Whitney again and her take on the matter. My experience is that the black student athletes are pretty much just pawns. You get your scholarship, you do what you have to do, you get treated horribly, whether that's barely any food with travel or barely any money with your scholarship. Hopefully it's not your last school, or if it is, you're kind of uh, in between a rock and a hard place. Mm. I guess that would be the thing. If if the program wasn't making money off of the players mm-hmm. and every nobody was making money, then we obviously wouldn't have this conversation. But you can't be making money and profiting off of the hard work and degradation of this person's body mm-hmm. and not give them any cut for why, though. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like— and- That's just for the high school level, all the money that they're bringing in. And there's even high schools who are sponsored by Mm -hmm. Nike, Adidas, Under Armour, all these big brands that they get all this stuff that gets poured into the school. But Mm -hmm. it doesn't get—none of it goes into the pockets of these 
young athletes that are, you know, trying to do more. Yeah. Then you get to the college level and you're on the bigger stage where it's a lot more money that's being put into these organizations and a lot more revenue that's being mm-hmm. generated. And these kids are struggling to get a meal. Yeah. Some of these kids, you know, they haven't necessarily had certain training or have an understanding of how finances work. And so they're trying to figure out what it's like to live alone, Mm -hmm. what it's like to be an adult, what it's like to manage finances. And you're throwing all this stuff in instead of providing certain resources, Mm -hmm. as well as putting money in their pockets for generating millions for these uh, colleges and universities. You're just saying, oh, here's a seat in a classroom. Not a free education because these kids never really get an opportunity to study what they want to study. Mm. Say a a black student athlete who played basketball and is a top recruit wants to be an engineer. For some sports, it's a lot easier and they have a lot more flexible schedules to do that. But when you look at spectator sports like the basketballs, football, Mm -hmm. if you're black, you're more than likely not going to be able to do that. Back to our conversation People think that black people and black student athletes are invincible or superhuman and don't feel pain. And so these uh, black boys are having their body exhausted more than what they usually would. I wanted to bring up, you know, because we talk about how just how much these athletes put their bodies through and kind of how that plays into the already problematic narrative that we are so strong and we don't Mm -hmm. feel pain and all of these things that come into play, you know, in policing and in healthcare, you know, even medical literature, you'll see that they have those listed as medical facts still Mm -hmm. in in 2020. I saw something as recent as um, 2018 where they listed the characteristics of different patients and their response to pain. And for the black patient, it literally said less likely to experience pain And I just think that's wild. And you see that with sports, you know, people went crazy when um, Terrell Owens played that Super Bowl game. Mm -hmm. I think it's uh, Super Bowl like 39. Yeah. And he just had some crazy injuries. I think he pulled a muscle, broke a femur, something crazy. Yeah. Went back on the field, played amazing. And so people are like, yeah, that's awesome. You know what I mean? They're they're like, they can endure anything. But in all actuality, it's just like, if you have your life on the line, your livelihood on the line, of course, you're going to push yourself, yeah. you know, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we should be treated um, as animalistic just because we work hard and we push ourselves, which is something really that the success in that field requires. Exactly. And I just hate that we have to grow up faster than everybody else. We have to essentially be stronger than everybody. We have to be more durable in the sense Mm -hmm. we have to endure a lot more pain. We have to push our bodies to a certain level just to get a fraction of what these individuals make as coaches and as team owners. Yeah. And like um, as uh, different organizations who are housing sports. And we need to find a way to change that. Here's Whitney again discussing her relationship with other student athletes. Yeah, there are um, all the student athletes I've pretty much come in contact with 
really nice. I mean, even majority of the non-black students are, um, or if they are a white student, they're usually from New Mexico. Mm-hmm. So you're pretty much kind of giving them a new world and a new aspect on things when you're coming from a different area. And they're really open-minded about that. But I'm pretty sure, like, everybody was just really open when it came to the student-athlete. How was it with you? So you played uh, basketball mm-hmm. at UNM. You were a Lobo. And so how, how was that experience for you? I mean, were there any Black people, like, that weren't athletes around you, you know, in the higher up position? I mean, what was your experience with that? Because I feel like a lot of times that's all they want us to do. They Mm. want you to play, maybe be an assistant coach. (laughs) Like Mm. it does seem like they leave us out of certain aspects of the sports world and those higher, high powered careers. Well, I think for me, I had a phenomenal experience. You know, it wasn't all great. It wasn't all bad. But I had mm-hmm. a phenomenal experience being a student athlete. For me, I had a difficult time connecting with the black students on campus just mm-hmm. because being in the position that I was at that time, being a student athlete on the basketball team where we're essentially celebrities out here, a lot of the black students didn't really feel like I could connect to them because they thought I had a big head or Mm. they thought I was too cool to hang out with them. And I was able to connect with a couple, but it was just a different dynamic because there's just negative image that's put on black student athletes and athletes in general, but specifically for black student athletes. We're gonna take a quick break with a word from our sponsors. Since 1912, Loveless Health System has been committed to meeting the growing healthcare needs of the Albuquerque community. They're invested in bringing people, providers, and technology together to ensure patients receive the best care possible. The vision of African American Student Services, AFRO, is to cultivate black excellence on the university campus through educational discourse, leadership development, holistic health, wellness practice, and community engagement. The African American Student Services Program at UNM provides culturally relevant programs designed to assist primarily African American Black students in making a confident transition and successful adjustment to the University of New Mexico. Is that does that come from the program and does it come from the way that they treat you guys and and publicize you and kind of like parade you around what like where does that dynamic come from I think it stems from several different things one is how they parade us around how we're seen in the media how we're idolized you know and fetishized in mm-hmm. certain ways that along with the different resources that we have available to us on campus mm-hmm. um or on south campus being that we have um separation between main campus and where the sports facilities are, but just having certain resources that they don't necessarily have access to. 
And that, along with just the financial and economic aspect of it in the sense of they think that we're taking all their money or um, we have all these different privileges, we have a free education, and they don't necessarily have the exact same access to a free education. But, you know, it was difficult for me to really get behind that argument because we essentially— put our life on the line, you know, exhausted our bodies just to try to find the way out. And that was essentially the destination. If I didn't have to go to college, I probably wouldn't have went. Mm. If I could just go somewhere and play professionally and start making money right out of high school or even during high school, I probably would have. But because the stipulation that the NCAA put Uh, college athletes having to go one year to college before they go pro. You have all these individuals who aren't necessarily enthusiastic about going to school, but we have to. And so we're just going to do what we can Uh, to make it because we're trying to get to the next level. Yeah. And now they're being forced to go through this whole intermediate experience before Mm -hmm. they get to the ultimate goal, which is to play pros. Exactly. Is that a pretty recent where they made that requirement where you have to play, you have to go to college before you go to the pros? Yeah, it may be a decade or two ago, but it's a fairly recent rule. I think the last class or one of the last classes that didn't have to go to college before they went to pro was um, uh, LeBron James class when we're talking about um, the NBA. But One of the things that people also understand when you're dealing with student-athlete is you don't have a life. You don't have your own schedule. You know, I'm not understanding of uh, the all the dynamics of being a regular student, but just in terms of being able to have a job or having flexibility or just, like, being able to, to, to determine your schedule, we don't have that option. All your time is pretty much taken up and devoted to the team mm-hmm. and to your sport mm-hmm. and to practices and everything else. Yeah. Do you feel like people took you less seriously, like as a college student, as an academic student? Oh yeah, definitely. Like when it came to college, education came relatively easier for me. Like I just was able to comprehend and things just clicked for me in a different way. You know, everybody has their things, but when it came to writing papers or doing assignments and all that, I would do them myself. And I'd even have peers just because we're all student athletes. They'd be like, who did this for you? Or how did you get this done? Instead of me being an individual who's actually capable of doing it. And it wasn't just for my peers. It was also for regular students who are like, oh, how did you pass this class? Or how did you get a good grade on this? And even talking to different adults and administrators until they actually got to know me and I actually was able to have a conversation with them. They thought, oh, I was just a typical student athlete. I'm just going to do whatever. Or, you know, it's just those stereotypes that they put on us. And when, in fact, it not only takes hard work to get to being a student athlete and get a scholarship, but it takes intelligence. You have to learn the sport and you have to be a student of the game that you're trying to excel in. And when you're putting effort into one thing, it might not show up in another. You know, all these regular students, 
they probably wouldn't be able to understand the language of basketball or football or soccer because they are studying a specific area in education. Yeah, and we we talk about the the physical aspect of it a lot, but it's it's a mental toughness and a mental resilience and a mental, you know, and self-discipline that comes with being a student athlete. You know, as far as I can tell, I wasn't a student athlete, <laughs> not in college. Um, but, um, you know, it is. And I imagine it hurts so much more experiencing that when people kind of downplay your intelligence or your capabilities as a student. Because, in fact, yes, you did do that yourself and you actually had to work much harder or lose more sleep or sacrifice something else in order to accomplish that because of what's required of you as an athlete. And that, on top of, we didn't get an opportunity to choose what we wanted to study. Mm -hmm. We were pushed into three fields, business, communications, or liberal arts. Mm. Why is that? Why, Why those three? I think there's a perception of those being easier for us to comprehend or those being more generalized, Mm. which— it's not fair, not only to us because we might have another interest, but also for those students who are going to school specifically for that. Mm-hmm. You saying, oh, just go into business, liberal arts, or communications, it's downplaying the achievements and the incredible feats that students are accomplishing in those fields right. by saying, oh, all the athletes are in it. Yeah, it's like devaluing it. Like, oh, you're just studying communication. Exactly. It's like, no. <laughs> That's what my degree's in, honestly. <laughs> so I'm just like, dang. I'm like, oh, you're a communication <laughs> major too, huh? Yes. And it's crazy because these are the supposed to be the formative years where you're gaining your self-esteem. You're figuring out who you are, what it is you want to do, and how you want to show up in the world. And, you know, for a lot of people, you know, they've been— putting in the work since they were toddlers. You know what I mean? Since they were little, little, little. And now you get to this level in either high school or college before you go pro. And you have all of this knowledge and all this skill under your belt and someone else reaps the benefits. Do you think that if athletic programs were majorly white, that would be different? I think it would be. I think just because, again, you have that premise of racism and Mm -hmm. this being the modern-day plantation. And let's backtrack a little bit. When you look at college athletics, you look at the term amateur. Before college athletics, they labeled that term for individuals who wanted to compete recreationally, but they were wealthy. Oh, okay. And so as, they didn't necessarily have the skills. Mm-hmm. They just had the money. Exactly. Okay. And then as people of color and people who didn't necessarily have the wealth to be able to play these sports, trying to get into certain sports and learning the game and excelling at it because that's essentially what they want to be a part of or, you know, it was just different reasons for that. But as you get those individuals, they begin to shape the language and the word of amateur to anybody who wants to play, but you can't make any money off of it Mm. because you're not playing at a professional level or, you know, you're playing with a certain organization. And so them taking that language of amateur and putting it into college sports, and now they're able to make free money off of these black student athletes because they're like, okay, all these black people 
They've always been doing sports and always been doing competitive activities since the slave days. Let's just transform that and reshape it into now they're competing. It's not as violent and we're still not paying them, but we get all the money. And they're like, they want to do it anyway. That's what their bodies are built for anyway. Exactly. You know, it is just like, it's crazy, but not at the same time because we know the history. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that that history, I didn't quite know those details about this whole kind of in-between, mm-hmm. you know, intermediate space where we can like make as much money off of these students as possible. And then call them amateurs like, oh, no, we can't pay you yet. You're not good enough yet. Even though you've been playing since you were yay high and you've been coached by some of the best in the country and everything, like you're you're still not good enough to get paid yet. Mm-hmm. Wild. And I just think that it's very frustrating because you have these spectator sports, which are the main sports that are not necessarily getting paid or mm-hmm dancing around, Mm -hmm. compensating these athletes fairly. But then you have these other sports that it takes a lot more resources to play, and they can essentially do things like during the offseason go play in different leagues or different tournaments or get contracted to play in other areas because it's like white space sports or it's sports that are dominated by white populations, those sports that are having a lot more privilege. Remember the Titans comes to mind. And I know that was so long ago. And so it's kind of exaggerated. But I have heard, I know, you know, other athletes, and I have heard of there being some of that dynamic within teams and programs. Did you experience that here? A little bit. One of the things and what makes it hard really being able to navigate athletics is having leadership that doesn't look like you. Mm, And so when you don't have that many not only black coaches, but coaches of color that you can relate to, then it's harder to really push through and really be motivated Mm -hmm. to uh, excel in the sport. And so for me, it was great having all my uh, brothers who were black and everything. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that I wasn't cool with the white players on the team, but it was just a different dynamic and connection as well as seeing the way that we are treated versus the way that they're treated. There, so there was a, a difference yeah. in the way you guys were treated. Yes, in some instances. Mm-hmm. Some, it wasn't necessarily that prevalent, but there were instances where decisions were favored more by, you know, the— Certain folks. Exactly. You know, I, I feel that. But, yeah, it's, um, it's it was definitely difficult, again, mm-hmm. dealing with athletics— um, and not necessarily having all the staff that look like you. Through my years of playing at at the college level, I think I maybe had at one time two coaches that were coaches of color. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or black coaches and, you know. I feel like with sports, like it's obviously you're putting your body through a lot. It's common for players to have injuries, sometimes career-ending injuries. And a lot of what we talked about earlier is you're putting your body through a lot, you're going through a lot, you're making a lot of sacrifices, you're working hard, and one day you get injured. Now all of the hard work that you've put in, even for that institution you're playing for, your career could just be over like that. I know we talked about compensation for players, but what about some type of medical insurance or or coverage that would 
assure a player that if they get hurt because you're playing for us and you're making us money, then we got you. Is that is that a thing? Do people talk about that? Will it ever be a thing? I think it just kind of depends on the institution. I'm not familiar with it. I know for me, whenever I tried to play basketball again, that was something that I looked at as putting down an insurance policy of like mm-hmm. around 10000 in order to get yeah. millions because I had a pre-existing condition and a mm-hmm. surgery that could essentially affect whether I walk or not. Yeah, so you could do that outside of, but there's nothing in place right now that kind of protects the players on any level. Not that I'm aware of. I know that if there was an injury Mm -hmm. or something like that to happen, that the school would uh, pay for the surgery and pay for— Like the medical part. But I think there does need to be an insurance policy in place, and there needs to be— more of a compensation for if an injury does happen, especially an injury that ends somebody's career because essentially that's their livelihood. And you're not getting the education or the ideal education that you Mm -hmm. should be getting at the university because you're an athlete student. Athletics always comes first, especially if you're on scholarship. Mm. Is that because the programs kind of treat student athletes like they're pretty much disposable? Um, or, you know what I mean? Is that even a word? Or am I just looking at that from, you know, an outside <laughs> perspective? I think to a certain extent, um, there's a aspect of being disposable just because every four, six years max, but every four years, you're essentially going to have a new group of individuals that's going to be playing. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's sooner, sometimes it's, Later, depending on the dynamics of the team, you know, the players that are playing. But essentially, yeah, you're um, in some ways disposable. And for some universities and some colleges, that's it. You don't really have that connection to the university after that. You don't necessarily have that that, um, family orientation that you might have with, like, Mm -hmm. another organization once you leave. Yeah. For these athletes, especially when they're done, pretty much not pigeonholed, but are saturated uh, into the communication, business, and liberal arts fields. And so, you know, now you're trying to figure out what you're going to do. You know, you could possibly get into coaching, but if that's not what you want to do, now you have to figure out. What job can I get with, you know, being in the communications or being in business and what have you? And a lot of times they don't necessarily know what their future is going to be or what direction that they could go with that because they've been so focused or we've been so focused on the sport that we're playing. Mm -hmm. You see that a little bit more in the pros then. Mm -hmm. I mean, because we're we were having a little bit of conversation earlier, kind of talking about the way that it impacts an individual's ability to speak up for what they believe in. You know, we talked about uh, Colin Kaepernick and how they just kind of blackballed him. They just blacklisted him and kind of ruined his life. In your opinion, how would we go about giving, you know, athletes that, that freedom? Should that like be an overarching clause that they can just speak freely? Like they have their freedom of speech regardless of, you know, if they're on a sports team, a professional sports team? 
I think to a certain extent, athletes should be able to have that freedom of speech, especially for athletes that are oppressed or, you know, Mm -hmm. don't necessarily have the power or influence as the oppressors that are um, essentially running the system and Mm -hmm. who created the system. I think specifically when you look at different ways of expression, obviously having it to where you're peaceful, you're being respectful. I do believe that athletes should be able to express, you know, their mind and express how they feel. Yeah. And especially for Black student athletes, we being the ones that are driving the amount of money that's and revenue that's going into these organizations, you know, these leagues, these colleges, if we're the main ones that are putting our lives on the line, putting our bodies on the line for the success of these different organizations, the the least you could do is give us an opportunity to voice the way we feel, what we're dealing with, how we're going through, and the injustices that are going on in the community and the society that we live in. Yeah, I agree. The least you can do, yeah. right? <laughs> like, let me have a voice. I thought it was crazy when we heard a lot of the spectators Mm -hmm. saying, like, we don't want to hear what you guys have to say. We just want you to play. Like, we don't want to hear your opinions. Do you think that's, like, a widespread sentiment? Or do you think that most people feel like they're okay with the players saying what they feel and having their beliefs? I think it just depends on your skin color and your race. Mm -hmm. You know, Black people— we're always told, shut up and just play the sport or Mm -hmm. don't make too much ruckus. Don't speak your mind because that's out of character for you Mm -hmm. or that's not That's out of place for you. Exactly. And you have like these white athletes being able to voice the way they feel, Mm -hmm. voice their opinions because they have a society that's built to support who they are. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it's not fair. You know, we our intellectual beings, we understand, we conceptualize things. We're able to articulate the way that we feel. Yeah. But when you oppress us, when you put us down, when you undermine what we have to say or say, we're not even smart enough to say how we feel or we're primitive beings, we don't feel as much pain as other people, mm-hmm. that's demeaning everything that we're trying to accomplish when we are trying to voice our opinions or use our platform, use our status to mobilize our people to just be able to live a somewhat normal and equitable life. Yeah. I think it's really imperative that white sports fans really like check themselves Mm -hmm. and and non-black, you know, people of color, check themselves on the ideas that they're forming about Black people, you know, Black men in particular Mm -hmm. in this area. um, And ask yourself questions often and check in with yourself to make sure that you're not internalizing and then acting out these, these biases that these images create. You know what I mean? And that the commentary and everything surrounding it creates because... That's just what you have to do. I mean, obviously, we're going to, as a society, you know, consume sports and entertainment in that regard. Consume it and remember at the end of the day that these people are human beings. You know what I mean? They're not racehorses. They're not gladiators to be fought to the death. They're 
extremely hardworking and talented individuals, you know? So yeah, I think it's just the consumer's like responsibility to like check yourself. Yeah, definitely. And I think specifically when you look at New Mexico, there needs to be more of an intent, not only for individuals to check themselves, but to provide support for these Black student-athletes, especially, Mm -hmm. um, well, at all levels, actually, because we're very small in population, and so we don't necessarily see ourselves, we don't necessarily see a lot of people who look like us, and being essentially isolated and marginalized in certain communities, but only seeing ourselves when we play a sport, it's very hard to to really mobilize and to really yeah. grow and develop when you don't see a lot of people who look just like you. Yeah. And so a lot of people, especially when it comes to college, um, just saying these student athletes just need to be athletes and just do what they do and work on the court and everything versus really providing us support and giving us spaces to where we can speak, we can express ourselves. I think that would eliminate a lot of the issues, especially pertaining to New Mexico, where Black student athletes are dealing with, you know, harshest mental health issues Mm -hmm. um, and all these different challenges because a lot of the college athletes, we come from different communities that are predominantly Black. Mm -hmm. And so... When we come here, it's a cultural shock. We don't see anybody like us. We don't know where to go to see Black people. We don't know how to feel about being in certain situations. And it's just difficult to operate. Do you feel like it's important then, you know, to kind of throw in a solution (laughs) back here? Do you think that it's important for the universities then to really amp up their diversification efforts and bringing in Black students and attracting Black students and creating programs for Black students so that the only Black students at the school aren't just athletes. Mm. It needs to be everyone studying every different field. And do you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? No, definitely. And I think one of the first steps that you have to do is look at the amount of individuals or the population of people on the ground working and essentially providing staff and faculty Mm -hmm. that look just like those individuals. Yeah. I think that's going to be one of the initial steps. Mm -hmm. Also, combining or finding programs and initiatives that strategically put Black student-athletes with Black students on campus Mm -hmm. just because that's a whole another huge population that we don't see. And there's more Black students on campus than there are in athletics, specifically when it comes to New Mexico. Okay. But everybody sees the Black student-athletes. Uh, and so okay. bringing those individuals Bring together. together. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think those are two of the um, fastest things that you can do in yeah. order to help Black student-athletes. Definitely. I think we're kind of approaching the end. Did you have anything else that you wanted to explore with this topic? Again, we just need, especially for New Mexico, we just need that support being Black athletes and being in a space that's not necessarily inviting and encompassing of Black people because there's not a lot of Black not a lot of Black people in this space. And so yeah. people being really mindful of the challenges that we face being Black and being a minority in a minority-majority state. Yeah. And really, uh, again, being more intentional about 
giving us our space when we need it or yeah. providing resources to us when, when you we need it. Exactly. Yeah. And from a city and state governmental level, I think it's it's really important for, and this may seem like being nitpicky mm-hmm. and like it's not that big of a deal, but I think that it's so important for public figures at those levels to stop using terminology like tricultural. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important for those people to stop using verbiage like at risk, minority, statistically insignificant. You know, I think that those are really the things that those people have the responsibility in those positions to speak differently, mm-hmm. to move differently. You know what I mean? When when we're just in everyday life and when you're talking about people of color, specifically black people. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And again, don't be afraid to say black people. Yeah, there Stop, are black people here. <laughs> exactly. Stop saying people of color when you're really talking about yeah. black people and Stop using certain rhetoric like troubled child or, you know, deviant. Why can't Mm -hmm. we be at promise? Mm -hmm. Why can't we be prodigies? Why can't Mm -hmm. we be something that's uplifting that describes our children and the individuals that are coming up specifically when it comes to athletics? Why can't we be smart black athletes? Why do we always have to be strong, fast, Mm -hmm. you know, durable? Yeah. Yeah, we, we got to change up the language. And mm-hmm. I think that's what the Movement for Black Lives right now is is really doing a good job, like all of us collectively, of mm-hmm. pointing out the subtleties of the systemic racism in this country. You know, those things that seem so small, but they're actually really important cogs in the machine of this country. Mm-hmm. And we can't keep overlooking them. Re-educated, brought to you by the New Mexico State Office of African American Affairs. Aimed to study, identify, and provide change by means of support, advocacy, and resources relevant to the African American community. As a reminder, every voice matters. Make sure you are counted in the 2020 Census. The Office of Equity and Inclusion was established by Mayor Tim Keller in 2018. The vision of the office is to inspire and equip city governments to make Albuquerque a national role model of racial equity and social justice. The office is responsible for dismantling systemic barriers to achieve racial, gender, health, and socioeconomic equality. Michelle Melendez is the inaugural director of the Office of Equity and Inclusion. In September, Melendez was instrumental in passing R2075, legislation that strengthens and reaffirms the city's commitment to addressing racial equity and social justice. The resolution calls on Our the city to support the startup the glow, and growth of businesses we'll be owned by people of color, women, and racial equity assessments for the city department, community. and requires equity training for the city council leadership and administration. On this edition of The Glow, we'd like to highlight SNAP Fitness, a Black-owned fitness center based out of Portales, New Mexico. 
Owner Darlin McLeod has been working diligently to keep his facility COVID safe. We'd also like to give a special thank you to our post-production partner, Better Sense. In the area Powered by nearly a decade of audio and production you can find experience, more information about Better Sense exists to help you create your life-changing projects. Go to bttrsnc.com in order to explore how you can awaken the potential of your musical ideas. So that pretty much wraps up our episode. Thank you all so much for listening. While you're at it, make sure you like, share, and subscribe this podcast. We appreciate all of your support and we commend everybody out there that's doing their part in the movement for Black Lives. Make sure you send us your feedback on the website. It's oaaa.state.nm.us. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you again for listening.